So welcome everyone to our first live episode of Caffeinated Innovation. We're thrilled to have you. Thrilled also to have Clara with us, especially right before the holidays. So I'm going to let Jen introduce Clara in a second, give a little bit of background, but as Terry mentioned, as an, and as I just said, we are here today doing our first live podcast. So for those of you who have not tuned in, and I hope you will after today, I, I will sufficiently guilt you probably throughout the episode. Um, we are, uh, we just completed our first season of Caffeinated Innovation. We are on SoundCloud, soon to be on iTunes. Uh, it was an eight episode season with a bonus holiday episode last week where we're hilarious. Yeah, we were pretty funny. Uh, you, in our holiday episode, you got a great glimpse into the world of Pam and Jen to uh, to native New Jerseyans. I'm not so proud of that. I think Jen is. I'm okay. I have a bracelet that has New Jersey on it. <laughs> and <laughs> so, in the season though, prior to the episode last week, where you got to learn about our silliness, we interviewed several founders of uh, the companies that IW has either supported or has has supported both with investment or supported in growth uh, with one of our manufacturers in one of uh, the outer communities of Pittsburgh. So please check it out. We had a lot of fun recording it. We recorded over the summer and then released in the early fall. And uh, we'll be back for season two in 19. Uh, format Is this season two? Hmm? <laughs> is this the first episode of season two? This is yeah. our, we haven't thought of yeah, that. Yeah. This is our bonus bonus Yeah, bonus bonus. One. I was thinking that too. <laughs> bonus bonus. Um, so we'll be back for in 19 with season two, uh, slightly different format. But the reason why we have so many microphones up here today, which I'm sure you're wondering, are they, you know, being channeled by several news organizations. Not the case, not yet at least. Uh, so the mics here are for the podcast, which our friend, uh, friends from Studio Me are helping us uh, produce today. Uh, and then these are for the audience today. So uh, again, forgive us with the many microphones. But Jen. Yes, so I want to introduce Clara. Uh, Clara is a partner and founding member at Revolution Ventures. She serves on the board at Framebridge, Pero, Playa. Playa? Playa, Policy Genius, and SRS Aquam. Uh, Clara was featured on Forbes 30 Under 30 for Venture Capital and named one of LinkedIn's Next Wave Top 10 Professionals Under 35 for VC and Finance. And Clara went to Stanford, and she's from Pittsburgh, born and raised. Yeah. <laughs> so, Clara, our first question for all of our guests, which all of our listeners out here and, you know, listening, uh, listening later... No. What is your favorite form of caffeine? It, it's not very creative, but it's coffee. <laughs> Which today looks like mostly creamer, but you know. <laughs> Whatever gets you through the morning, right? And Jen, what's yours? It's 6 a.m. on the West Coast, right? Yeah. So I'm drinking water today, which doesn't have caffeine in it, but it's still energizing and everyone needs a lot of water. Usually it's coffee, but I'm trying to go with water today. Preparing like for the holidays. I like it. Yeah. I like it. So my favorite favorite form of caffeine, which has become a, a story on its own, is Earl Grey tea. Uh, I, as you can learn about in the episode uh, that we just recorded last week, I have a great obsession. In fact, last night I found an online subscription for tea. I will probably be uh, jumping onto that in the new year. So <laughs> you can always ask me about tea. But yeah. Uh, so Clara, for our first question, can you tell us a little bit, how did you get into venture capital? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as they mentioned, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and then I, um, I went out to school on the West Coast at Stanford, and um, following that, I did investment banking at UBS in the um, Leverage Finance and Financial Sponsors Group. 
Um, that quickly rebranded to Leverage Finance and Restructuring at the peak of the meltdown, and then a handful of us left to start our own restructuring firm, um, which was a disaster. Um, and then I got to know Steve Case, who is my uh, boss now, um, and we were working at Revolution on changing from being a family office, um, which he started in 2005 when he left AOL, which is um, America Online, which he founded, which is less relevant today, but I'm like, okay, I grew up on AIM with a screen name, working on my away messages, but whatever. Um, Wait, is, can, can we ask, yeah, do you well, have one that was like your favorite? My screen name was CCC, which is like, it's pretty embarrassing. Mine was Bubbles XO. Okay, that's more embarrassing. <laughs> I, mine was like answering coffee for the least creative answer, and mine was CCC. Um, yeah, so I started working with them in 2010 when we were first institutionalizing. Um, I helped raise our uh, growth fund, which is about a billion under management on that side, typically writing about 20, 20 to $50 million initial checks in and then scaling up over the life cycle of a company. Um, and then we pretty quickly realized that um, we were missing a lot of the early stage deal flow, which Steve naturally attracted because he's really a founder's founder. Um, and so we institutionalized on the venture side as well. Um, and that's what I focus on. So all Series A, Series B opportunities, typically anywhere in the 2 to $10 million range is an initial check-in. And then, again, we'll scale up over the life cycle of a company. So. It's a little bit different than a number of other firms that take a more of a kind of spray and pray approach um, where we're really concentrating capital, only working with three to four new companies a year um, and spending a lot of time and effort um, in helping them scale. And then another component of um, our investing strategy is really focusing on markets where there's a capital gap. So a place like Pittsburgh where you've got um, a lot of folks like Innovation Work that really help um, start companies um, and get them at the seed stage and, and supportive angel networks as well, but where you don't have as much Series A, Series B investment. Um, and we see that as a real opportunity for us as a fund um, because in the Valley, most stuff is kind of priced to perfection and um, it's a little bit more challenging to deploy dollars there. And um, we think in, in ecosystems like these, there's a ton of promise. Um, but just not as much capital to support growth. Um, so I feel like I have a lot of questions about <laughs> all of that, but one is, so as a VC, what does fundraising look like? Because I think a lot of people see VCs and they're like, okay, you're the money pool, right? Like yeah. you have all this money, but how do you get all of that money? Yeah, so um, it's not dissimilar to a founder story in the sense that we are asking people to give us money so that we can give other people money. <laughs> um, and I think it, it actually, going through a fundraise process makes you a lot more sympathetic to the, the founder's um, journey because a lot of people say no. Um, but the, the key difference is that for us, it's a, they're closed-ended funds, so typically four to five-year cycles um, in terms of fundraising cadence. Um, the venture fund that we have is a $200 million fund. We're, you know, we will go into a fundraising cycle every three to four to five years, depending on um, investment pacing. And then it's going out and meeting with um, CIOs and investment teams at foundations, endowments, pensions, family offices, high net worths. So um, kind of runs the gamut. 
And how did, so why, why was this something that drew you in professionally? Um, yeah, so I, um, my dad is a math professor, and so I did a lot of math growing up, which I didn't ever really find that applicable um, to real world things. And then when I went to Stanford, I loved economics because it kind of sat at the crosshairs of um, what I was good at from growing up, but also something that interested me in terms of applicability. And I think doing venture investing is very similar in the sense that you're doing a lot of pattern recognition around um, very different portfolio companies and founders and approaches to different markets. Um, but at its core, it's analysis and diligence on, on those companies and existing markets. Um, so I enjoy it. And it's also just really rewarding to be able to meet with people who are smarter than you all day and hear about what they've devoted their lives to building. Go ahead. So you talked a little bit about why Pittsburgh is such an important market, but you guys haven't invested in Pittsburgh yet. So um, thinking about some of the Pittsburgh companies, I know you're meeting with some today, um, like what would make a Pittsburgh company interesting to Revolution? Yeah, it's not for lack of trying. We've certainly um, met with a number of companies over the years and um, you know, gotten in more advanced conversations with them. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll get a portfolio company here in, in the near term. Um, I think Pittsburgh is a really interesting and evolving ecosystem for a number of reasons. Um, you've got the university system here. You've got um, much bigger corporates now like Google and, and Facebook Oculus and Uber really devoting capital and, and hiring here so it retains talent. And I think just generally as a place to live, it's changed a lot since I even grew up here. Um, I mean, you can look at, we were talking about this Lawrenceville as a example where it's hip and cool and happening. And um, I think restaurant scenes and um, real cultural events kind of help retain younger talent as well. Um, so that's part of the, the change in the ecosystem that I think has been really positive. And then on top of that, I think folks like Innovation Works and Carnegie Mellon now with the Schwartz Center and, and more focus at, at the Tepper School um, has really reoriented from research grants to real business building. Um, and I think that transition has been a little bit more recent. Um, and, you know, we're not seed stage investors. So we're hoping that a number of those companies sort of bubble up and, and we can partner with them. We have a commercial for Pittsburgh right here, don't we? I think so. It sounds like yeah. we might need to open a revolution office here in Pittsburgh. I know. <laughs> My mom would love that. <laughs> well, we should make that happen, right? <laughs> so one thing that in doing a little bit of research, I saw that you, um, that Revolution invested in Sweetgreen. Yes. And as someone who lived in DC for a while, I, I lived for the Sweetgreen salad. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that deal and, and what the process is like with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's one of our, our growth stage investments. So um, we just announced a couple of weeks ago that um, they raised a big kind of pre-IPO round, um, which we're excited about, obviously. I think um, that is a case study in, in the way we think about um, the importance of brand in terms of our consumer bets. So um, there are a lot of options when you want to buy a salad. I can't believe I'm talking about this. Um, but they've done an incredible job of um, changing the supply chain in um, food in terms of going, establishing local ecosystems in every market that they enter so that you're really eating fresh local food um, that is organic in nature and healthier and better for you. Um, and one of our theses is around food um, and that the supply chain has really been broken over the past, you know, 
20, 30 years where you've gone from small localized farms to, you know, corporate kind of factory farming um, and the quality of food has really deteriorated and you've seen that in the prevalence of, you know, foodborne illness. Um, but we, we don't go so far to think that Soylent is going to solve issues. We are believers that the future of food is food and it's just better delivered, more convenient, healthier options for consumers. Um, and that was the thesis behind Sweetgreen. And is that the similar type of approach that you take with some of the other investments that you're making? From a brand perspective, yes. Um, I think, you know, we look for really big markets where billions of dollars by consumers or enterprises is already being spent. So you're not reinventing the wheel there. Um, but where technology and smart innovation can make better value props for consumers, um, make things more cost efficient for businesses, um, and where you can kind of disrupt an incumbent's business model um, to the point where they either need to own you or you can be a large independent company um, on your own. And from a consumer perspective, a lot of that is often brand oriented and telling the story correctly. So Sweetgreen is a case study of um, providing healthier, better for you options. Um, all wrapped in this sort of aspirational brand that um, is very transparent and that speaks to consumers well. I think Pam and I thought of that question because we really want a sweet green here. But maybe you had some pull. Yeah. yeah, no, we'll work on it. Um, second and third year markets are kind of where we're, we're going to next. So I think we have a question around um, maybe going back to Revolution, and you talked a little bit about how you started with Revolution, but can you talk a little bit about the need for Revolution Ventures and why what you are doing there is so important? Um, we hope it's important. <laughs> uh, we have um, a strategy that um, we've called Rise of the Rest, which is really focusing capital in places like Pittsburgh that are emerging second and third tier cities where there is that capital gap that we discussed before. Um, and I think as we've seen an increase in urbanization and a cost of living in a New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles that's completely untenable for most people, um, we've seen a lot of flight back to urban areas that aren't the, the biggest hubs. Um, and I think increasingly you have as we were talking about before, supportive angel networks, sometimes government, nonprofit um, funded groups that can help spur innovation, but still a gap at the Series A, Series B level, which introduces a lot of risk for founders when they're going to start companies. Um, and we believe that it, I mean, we think that creates a real opportunity for us economically, obviously, or we wouldn't be doing it. Um, but we think from a job growth perspective in the U.S., it's critically important that we're not just focusing dollars on five markets, um, but really creating job growth across the U.S. So jumping on that idea of job growth in the second and third tier cities, so as you mentioned, Pittsburgh certainly is one of those. What are some of the other cities that you would capture uh, within that framework and some things that you want to look for as you enter into those markets? Yeah, so um, they're similar, again, to what I was talking about in terms of the Pittsburgh ecosystem. You typically have universities throwing off a lot of talent every year. Um, existing legacy industries 
who can retain that talent so that you can switch in and out of startups to corporate um, pretty with like some level of certainty so that it's not as risky to start your own company. Um, and then encouragement and growth at that early and initial stage and communities that support it. And then I would couple it again with the emerging restaurant scenes and um, real cultural growth there so that it's a more relevant and exciting place to retain young talent because the talent war is a real thing. Um, so other cities that we look at, Durham, Raleigh have some similar characteristics. Um, Milwaukee, Madison are actually pretty interesting in that, in that regard in emerging ecosystems. Um, Michigan, Ann Arbor area as well. Um, and then historically, we've, we've put a lot of dollars to work in places like Denver and Chicago and Austin, where those ecosystems are now um, you know, pretty advanced um, and are attracting a lot more capital. Um, but where you have those same dynamics um, of really high quality of living, um, but at a much lower price point. Great, thank you. So um, we have a lot of entrepreneurs in the audience today. I can see them. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to steal all their questions, but I think a question that they might have is around um, fundraising, and if they're going to an investor, what are some tips that you might have for um, an entrepreneur who would be approaching you specifically at Revolution? Like, what's your, you know, what are you looking for in companies? Um, so there are two different questions, one on process and one sort of on, on the areas that we focus on. Um, historically, we've been generalists. Um, do work on enterprise and consumer companies. I t focus more on consumer stuff because enterprise is just sort of like over my head. Um, so I don't know what questions to ask and everything sounds good to me, which is probably not the best way to invest. Um, and within that, um, you know, again, we, we tend to care more about team deal dynamics, um, geographic concerns and, and those sorts of things than specific thesis driven investments. Um, but in terms of theses that today we're, we're spending a lot of time on, um, fertility preservation and new parent services. So um, when you think about the landscape there, 2016 was the first year in recorded history in the U.S. that more women in their 30s gave birth than women in their 20s, which is a pretty mind-blowing stat because it means that that shift is not just a coastal phenomenon, it's happening everywhere. Um, and that is also tied to women in the workplace. And there are numerous studies that say having a child earlier really limits your um, upper bounds for, for earning as a woman. Um, and so that ties back into new parent services. And then you layer on urbanization and the fact that most people don't live in close proximity to their families um, who used to serve as the village for raising your children. Um, and so the need for new parent services is uh, really strong, and that's obviously a very broad category from childcare to education to even food um, that you know we we spend a lot of time on, um, and that I think there are going to be some interesting opportunities around. Um, the Amazon marketplace is is another area that we've devoted a lot of time to. Um, when you think about Google and Facebook being the leaders in um, search. You can layer over now Amazon as 
the number three player because it's so heavily intent based. So I don't I go on Google and like wonder how far it is to another place or you know, searching for an, a news article, but when I'm on Amazon, I'm searching for a specific product and have a real intent to purchase. Um, and so optimizing around that marketing channel and loop and brand building within the Amazon ecosystem is still pretty broken and there aren't very many players supporting companies in that, but it's a big growth opportunity. Um, and within that, um, we start thinking about distribution and fulfillment and all that sort of stuff. Um, FBA accounts fulfilled by Amazon have grown from 40% 40, 40 of Amazon's business to 75% of Amazon's business, um, but they just don't have the capacity to um, really support all of that. Um, so they've started certifying different distribution centers as prime, but you would have never thought that would happen. J. Crew just announced for the first time that they're using Amazon as a channel, which again, you would have never thought that would happen five years ago. Um, so there is a lot of interesting stuff to invest in around that. Um, and then another thesis that we've been spending time on is just the humanization of pets um, and the amount of spend devoted to dogs and cats. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, exactly. You're, I mean, you probably spend more on the dog than you would on a child. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the, so some of the things areas. you just chatted about. So, and I know that the, the concept of social impact is somewhat, it's broad. It's also hard to define that, but as you're sharing a little bit more earlier about the sweet green model, the local food and, and local channels, and then in addition to, you know, the, the fact about women having children later and investing in companies that could support that. How, and then even with the Amazon piece of making things more accessible, how does that really affect the communities in which there's investment made and, and how does that come into play with what, uh, with what Revolution is doing day in and day out? Yeah, we're, we're fundamentally economically driven. We're not an impact fund, um, but we do skew towards the side of we wanna do well and do good. And so it's with that lens that we often look at opportunities, but we're not impact investors. No, no, and that's and I think that's a good thing to clarify, right? Is you know you have to you have to do something that's economically sound, and it's it's great that there are other uh, other avenues that are uh, or other you know benefits to the investments you've made, and that's that yeah. social drive as well. But that's I think that's great for the audience, both here and and listeners, to learn. Yeah. So I think. We were thinking about kind of a fun question that maybe is fun for the audience and us, but not so much fun for you. <laughs> Are there any deals that maybe you've missed out on or, you know, markets that you should have gotten into more, you feel like revolution should have gotten into more quickly um, that you're just like, oh my gosh, like you talk about it as a team all the time. like. That was the one we could have done it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I mean, the for us, it's um, a little bit different than typical venture capital because we do take such a concentrated approach that for a lot of these funds that have raised billions of dollars now, their real downside is missing out on a generationally defining company, um, where ours is really getting into a deal that goes to zero. Um, so it's a little bit nuanced in terms of that, but obviously we have an anti-portfolio of, of companies that we wish we'd invested in. Um, we were the original money in Zipcar and really grew that up to its IPO and acquisition. So we had a lot of insights on how technology would change the future of transportation and the shared economy kind of 
whiffed on that with Lyft and Uber. Um, same with um, Airbnb. Um, we were investors in exclusive resorts and Inspirato, which were early iterations of um, shared vacation rentals. Um, we didn't invest in Airbnb. Or home away. Or oh, I can <laughs> see the pain in your on. face. We can stop this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We want this to be a positive experience. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> okay. So, what advice do you have for uh, for any of the entrepreneurs here in the room, or any who are listening later today, or tomorrow, or even next week? Uh, any advice that you have for them, both in approaching an investor generally and or approaching Revolution at some point? Yeah. So, there are a lot of founders and a lot of ideas and I think sometimes um, because of the volume of inbound that different venture capitalists receive it's hard to navigate that um, and so I, I always recommend trying to LinkedIn is a very powerful tool second third degree connections try and get a warm intro um, because that Im immediately puts you at the top of the pile for at least getting your foot in the door um, and then from there, really strong communication. Um, Ron Conway used to say that if in a fundraising cycle a founder didn't reply to him within 30 minutes, he wouldn't invest in them because um, they aren't prioritizing the needs of their business. If you're raising capital, you need to be focused on raising capital. Um, I'm not that extreme in, in that assessment, but I do think Good, strong communication from the get-go um, paints a picture for what it's like to work with you after a fundraise cycle. Um, transparency and then just having your ducks in a row in terms of um, your model, how you think about different drivers of your business, and what your growth plan looks like, who you need to hire, who would be a dream for you to hire, um, strategic partnerships that will help accelerate your business, and then just generally speaking what the product and innovation roadmap looks like. And I think our last question before we open it up to the audience um, is, I know that there are a lot of people in the audience who maybe want to be VCs. Um, I definitely have heard people who are like, I'm from this region too. I've been following Clara's career. She's awesome. Um, so what is your, do you have some advice for sort of people who want to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, I think um, I was, it, my experience was, sort of a little bit random. I got lucky by meeting Steve and then I worked really hard for him and that created an opportunity for me, um, which obviously isn't like a replicable bath. Um, but I think the core tenets of that, of working really hard, trying to develop some theses and thinking about different markets and putting yourself in um, the shoes of a venture capitalist where you're looking at different early stage startups, you think some are interesting, you think some aren't, you can articulate why that is, um, helps you at least get your arms around what the day-to-day -day job is and whether you would enjoy doing that. Um, and then it's just continuing to network. There are networking events. I mean, I could fill my schedule with going to networking events like 24 hours a day. Um, and just having that grit and hopefully one day there's a door that opens up for you and you can do what you want. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to open it up to questions from the room. Uh, we have a mic runner right there, Jim Jen. Okay. Uh, so Hi, how are you? <laughs> so does anyone have any questions for Clara? Oh, right over here. 
I'm early and um, So the first question I had, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the uh, rise of REST? Uh, so that online. So I'm going to repeat. I'm going to repeat the question so we pick it up on the audio for the for the episode too. So just correct me if I'm wrong. So sharing a little bit more about rise of the REST. Yeah, so it's, um, we started working on this about 10 years ago before we really formalized it into a strategy. But it came out of from when we were institutionalizing um, and putting our track record together and realizing that most of our returns had been driven by portfolio companies outside of the Valley, outside of Boston. Um, and so we started spending more and more time in these emerging markets. Um, and then Steve has devoted a lot of his time and energy um, and brand building to going from city to city and putting on pitch competitions and really putting dollars to work at the very early stage in different ecosystems. And then um, from the perspective of our ventures and, and growth funds, um, that creates a really unique funnel and um, you know, set of opportunities for us to think about as the company season. And for anyone watching online, we have a live stream. Uh, I'm looking at the hashtag. So if you have some online questions, just ask away. Thank you for sharing your insights with us today. One of the things that's most intriguing from my perspective, again, behavior, healthcare, and timing in those kinds of markets is when you look at emerging markets, does that change the timing and where you want to find investments in these companies? Do you think you have to catch an emerging market before consumer yeah, it's a really good question and one that we debate internally a lot um, because sometimes you can have a solution looking for a problem if the market isn't ready for it yet, um, which can consume a lot of capital if it's not ready to be adopted. Um, and then sometimes you're too late on a trend and you're not going to be able to, to get into that sort of opportunity. Um, a good example now is we've been looking at a lot of different iterations around um, corporate business travel, premises, or the Airbnb model. And there's a ton of capital flowing into it when you look at Sonder, Lyric, Airbnb is now thinking about investing in it. Um, but we also pair that with the fact that we're probably at a, at a market peak um, in terms of cycles. And when ADRs and occupancy rates start going down, do the economics go upside down because you're paying to get in at a very high lease rate. So that's a sort of minute answer. But we could be completely wrong on that and then miss out on all these emerging opportunities. And then guess what? It's a giant industry and we've whiffed. Um, so that's the sort of conundrum of, of that answer. Um, I thought it was really interesting that you said you only end up investing in three to four companies a year. Can you give us an idea of how many you look at? and? What is it, or if you could isolate one thing about those companies that you choose, what is it, or is it a balance of the portfolio? Yeah, there, there are a lot of inputs. I think top of funnel every year is in the thousands of companies, um, ones that we really end up digging into, windows down pretty quickly to hundreds, and then spending real time and diligence with probably in the you know hundred range. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of kind of going through saying no, um, which is the not fun part of the job. Um, in terms of things that we really look for and that um, distinguish companies that we tend to invest in, it's in part us and where we think we can be helpful. 
Um, if we can't help a company, they shouldn't be taking dilution from us because it's then we're just cash and there's a cheaper dollar down the street usually. Um, it's very founder driven and, and market driven at the Series A, Series B level because a lot of the times you have some product market fit, but the business hasn't really started scaling, so you're not underwriting on revenue metrics and stuff like that. Um, and again, the founder characteristics that we really look for are real drive, communication skills, um, why they are well suited to be starting a company in the area that they're starting one and their ability to hire and really motivate teams and, and scale with that. Um, and then outside of that, a, a lot of it is around deal mechanics. So um, there are a lot of companies that we see that we love, um, but deals that we don't, and we just won't invest in those cases. Thanks for coming out. Uh, we're glad this came out. <laughs> um, you did mention that uh, you like to do well and do good. And uh, I know that uh, diversity is generally working with kind of one specific group. And um, now that people are starting to talk about opportunity zones, um, the tax benefit might help other groups in that diversity. I understand you're not going to go down to Braddock and find a Series B company, right? We would love to. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of the thing. I mean, um, I guess I'm wondering, First, are you starting to hear any buzzing around the Silicon Valley area about uh, the tax benefits of um, working in opportunity zones? Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think there are actually a number of funds emerging that are focused solely on opportunity zones. Um, we've seen a lot of activity starting there on the real estate front initially, and I think as companies start realizing that there's opportunity to move into those places, there's going to be a lot of venture dollars flowing there. I mean, the tax benefits are real. <laughs> I'm assuming you have a company in Braddock. <laughs> Talk later. Larry, thanks for hanging with us in Pittsburgh. So oftentimes, when it comes to VC, we're classified as the Midwest, and our investors really like to see revenue. I mean, we all do, but it's very important to them. But contacts in the Valley will tell us revenue is distracting right now. Do that just when it comes to the A and B to scale user growth, show engagement. Can you talk to that? What's more important to you? Yeah, I think having a real understanding of unit economics and how the business works and being able to prove that you can scale revenue is important. Um, we don't subscribe to the just scale users at any cost methodology. I think it is important, particularly in ecosystems where you have less access to capital, to focus on the on building a sustainable business that doesn't just consume cash forever. Um, because a lot of the time, strategic opportunities are fewer and, and farther between in terms of being acquired just for a user base than they are in the Valley, where you have all these corporate acquirers right around you. Um, and I don't think it hurts to have revenue. <laughs> so I'm just curious how much of your decision making is hardcore number crunching and how much is more of like a, just a gut and um, intuition? It's certainly both. I think on um, founder diligencing, it's obviously a little bit more on the latter. Um, and then in terms of number crunching and that sort of stuff, most of it's market driven, um, size of opportunity, how they change the core economics of the um, market that they're entering, because obviously you're reinventing some of the incumbents' business models or 
creating your own. Um, and then a little bit on their actual model, depending on where the business is in their life cycle, um, whether or not they have revenue and um, how that scales. Morning. Um, so I have a question about um, looking at like, a total addressable market. So obviously, um, as entrepreneurs and founders, like you want to be able to capture like this really big picture, which it, you know in most cases is true. But then, how do you, as an investor, say, okay, like I know you're not going to actually get this entire market. So how do you then like sort of back into the number that you think that company can actually achieve with their market? That's a very good question. Um, I think it's it, there's a balance of boiling the ocean and um, having real focus as you're starting at the early stage. Um, for us, we look at being able to penetrate your initial addressable market pretty thoroughly and then see how the company or technology might roll out to expand the market. Um, and that's obviously a little bit more of an art than a science. Um, but you would hope that the core addressable market is big enough that if you get some level of penetration, it can still be a market-changing, defining, leading company. Um, I have a question just generally about um, the areas that you're looking. In Pittsburgh, people talk a lot about how there's a lot of seed money, but there's not a lot of bigger VCs. Um, and I'm wondering how, when you're looking at all these different second third tier of cities, how does Pittsburgh kind of compare to them? Is it um, sort of on par, ahead, or below any of the other cities that you're looking at and sort of growing its own um, native VC infrastructure? I think, obviously, Innovation Works done an incredible job um, at the seed stage level and continuing to support their companies. Um, yeah, there, there's certainly a capital gap here um, and not too many regional funds, um, which I think probably puts you a little bit below some of the other ecosystems. Um, I think the, the biggest knock on Pittsburgh, frankly, is that the airport um, has a lack of flights coming into it. It's very expensive to fly into, and then it's about 45 minutes outside of the city, um, which sounds like a nuance that should be able to overcome, but VCs are lazy. and don't like getting on planes, and if it, you make it harder and more expensive, it's not conducive. Sounds like we need to push for a light rail or something at the airport. Well, the Pittsburgh airport. airport used to be great and have so many flights, and then you know, US Air United pulled their hub out, and um, that created an issue. Um, it's nice to be 30 and the 30. I'm no I see a lot of them here, but so what about those of us who are 30 over 30? Yeah, I'm squarely in that bucket now. And also, you know, the biotech life science sphere, you know, you don't get your returns immediate. It's a long, you know, biology is messy. So what about you VCs putting some more money into that? It sounds great. We're the wrong shop to do that. Um, I don't, we don't do biotech and life sciences. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we'll put that in the category that I don't understand anything about. That sounds really cool. Hi, Clara. Thank you for being here. Appreciate it. Um, I've been looking at uh, the whole market for investment and so forth. We started the Next Act Fund a couple of years ago for the uh, women folks, angels, investing in women. There's only about somewhere between 1% to 5% max female VCs in the country. Yeah. I don't know globally, but in the country. 
Um, do you see that changing? What are you guys doing? Anybody doing anything to make that different? How can you guys, revolution makers, have an impact in that arena? I think, I mean, being a full partner on our investment team is kind of indicative of how we think about it. Um, partnerships are, you know, weird constructs, and I think if you want diversity in thought, you have to have diversity around the table. Um, and so that's how we've approached it, right? A third of our partnership on the venture side is female, and not by a particular focus or metric, but a third of our founders are female as well in our portfolio. Um, and that, I think, comes from two things. One, I get a lot more intros to women than uh, my partners do, just because women introduce women. Yeah. Um, and I think some of the biases that are sometimes not spoken about when it comes to women pitching and the way that their pitches are received and um, going back to kind of early childhood that stays through in adulthood of if a woman is assertive and speaks to an answer, she's bossy, rude, abrasive. If a man does that, he's confident. Um, that still carries through whether it's a known bias or just happens. Um, and I think that's something that's challenging to overcome. I think the more women in, you can get at the partnership level in venture capital, the more you'll see dollars flowing to women. Um, but again, that's a, a tricky subject because um, the last thing you want is a bunch of token hires, which aren't invested in in a real way and don't have a real voice at the table. And so, of course, they're not set up to succeed. And then you have a backlash sort of in the other direction. Um, so I know that's a really unsatisfying answer, but I think a lot of it has to happen with conscious focus on it, but not rushed. Um, because when you rush and push for things, a lot of the times you have negative outcomes. I'm going to sneak in a question, if that's all right. Um, okay. Maybe if you could talk a little bit more about the finding traction, because I know when we're working with startups, one of the things we're really trying to help them understand is what the bar looks like to raise that next round, or even you know calibrate how they are against the current round. So if you can you give a sense of sort of the some of the key metrics like the scale, like numbers, you know, whether it's revenue growth or you know, weekly active that you're seeing, whether it's at your stage or maybe even the seed stage, how they yeah, that's a, a pretty hard question to answer. <laughs> yeah, because there are a lot of different markets yeah. and and opportunities that you're looking for, and and there are a lot of sort of dials that we look at, whether it's market size of market that you're addressing, um, team that you've assembled, all those sorts of inputs, and then on the other side, if you're earlier, it's often just a dial on the valuation knob, um, so. Dilutive, more dilutive capital than less dilutive capital um, to make the, the round work. Um, but generally speaking, I think if you really kind of boil back, um, we like to see some revenue traction, um, typically 20% month-on-month growth as rough estimates um, and just a, a really strong founding team that has a specific vision. 
Blair, uh, thank you for the talk. I have a question. Chi uh, Wang, I'm not from Pittsburgh, but I came here, I fell in love with this city. And uh, when it comes to uh, a startup in robotics or advanced manufacturing, uh, where should I stay in Pittsburgh or go to a Silicon Valley or somewhere else? What do you think? Thank you. I'm a little bit biased on this side of things because I believe there's a ton of opportunity in Pittsburgh and in smaller cities because you have much stickier labor um, and a much lower cost of development. And I think particularly when it, as it relates to robotics, there's not a better talent pool than in Pittsburgh for that um, market. So it doesn't intuitively make sense to me why you would move out of Pittsburgh with more competitive hiring dynamics and a much higher cost of living for not as great of outcomes. Maybe I'm, I could be wrong about that, but that's my point of view. <laughs> so Jim, we had one last one over here in the second row. Hi, I'm Jenny, thanks for coming. Uh, I had a question since you're pretty focused in the consumer market about you know, whether your thinking has changed in the last five or so years as the giants get more giant and just kind of do things without needing to make money on them because their revenues are more places. Uh, an example I'll give is that I was looking for, for my business for a survey provider recently. And in the past, I would pay for SurveyMonkey, but now Google Forms is free and they don't need to make money on Google Forms, and so why wouldn't I use that? Um, have you found it more challenging, or has it changed the bar at all in your investments in the consumer market to have kind of more and more things come out of tech giants that don't need them to be independent companies? Um, how, how, kind of, how did that change the dynamics of what you're looking at? It certainly impacts the way that you think about a competitive landscape. Um, I would argue that Google Forms is a not as good of a product as SurveyMonkey. Um, and there's always opportunity if you are really focused on, on an area to beat an incumbent. Um, I think the biggest shift that we've seen in consumer is unreliable social. So it's gotten extraordinarily expensive to acquire customers on um, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. And the numbers can fluctuate massively. Um, and so where you saw all these direct-to-consumer businesses coming up, you know, four or five years ago, building really big followings, it's just not feasible anymore because the customer acquisition cost is way too high. Um, so unless you have some view into organic or a strategic partnership that helps you um, get customers, I think B2B2C is um, one of the new avenues that we've been looking at in broadly consumer because um, it's just really challenging. And then um, in terms of physical goods and brand building, um, we've done a lot in online, offline, because you, again, online can tap out pretty quickly when you start thinking about customer acquisition costs and having sort of 3D billboard where people can interact with your product and um, have an experiential shopping um, experience. Um, really elevates the brand. So th those are some of the, the things that we've been focused on, um, which doesn't really answer the I mean, that, that the, actually really is well, just to have, you're, you're seeing a little bit more of a focus on those kind of strategic partnerships for, for increasing brand awareness early on, maybe where you would have. And organic traction. So you look at um, 
like Glossier and Goop, which have been big breakouts in um, the direct-to-consumer space. Why? Because they have, they've been founded by people who have organic followings already. It's obviously not always replicable, but um, hooks in like that on the organic side, I think, are really positive. Um, and then people who have unique ability. So one of our companies, Framebridge, started you know five years ago, so they were able to get a consumer following and, and break out in, in that sense. But what they've really innovated on is the manufacturing side of it um, to build a business that, from a margin perspective, incumbents can't compete with. Um, so those are some of the tenants that we think about. Very helpful, thanks. So to wrap up, where, I'm sure there are still a ton of questions that people would love to ask you. Where are you online? What's your Twitter name? Um, those kinds of things. I know you're hilarious on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, my Twitter is just my last name, S-I-E-G. So it's pretty straightforward. Well, Clara, we're so happy that you were able to join us today. Thank you for having me. This was really uh, fun. We, we had a lot of fun, and I think the audience had, had a great deal of fun as well. I'm sure listeners will too. Um, as a reminder to everyone, this is uh, our bonus bonus episode of season one of Caffeinated Innovation. Please tune in uh, and listen to our first season and check back for season two. I told you I'd be back to guilt you into listening to more. Uh, so even listen again, you know, just to refresh yourself. Uh, and if you're interested in sharing some feedback about the podcast or getting a little bit more information about Innovation Works, you can find us online on Twitter. Uh, you can sign up for our email listserv or, or send us a note as well. Uh, again, thank you all for coming. Thank you, Clara, and happy holidays, everyone. Caffeinated Innovation is a product of InnovationWorks, Inc., a Ben Franklin technology partner. Our theme music is by a Startable Pittsburgh alum, Ethan Ziegler, and it's called Bring the Soul. For more episodes, you can find us at innovationworks.org slash caffeinatedinnovation.